sermon podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Awesome. All right, well, hey, grab your Bibles if you would this morning and turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we are going to continue to press forward in another installment of our series on the ancient future church. And I'm a little saddened because our series is coming to a close here at the end of this month. So we have just a a few more key installments on our series about discovering what God's plan and purpose and vision for the church has always been and how we can enter into greater agreement and alignment with who his church is today and into the future. So Father, we ask today that by the ministry and the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask for revelation and wisdom, we ask for knowledge and we ask for understanding. We ask, Father, today that we would hear the voice of God proclaimed through the word of God. We ask today that there would be a now word for every single one of us, that you would speak through clay lips and clay vessels today and that you would cause your wisdom and your counsel and your comfort to be learned and discerned, that we could live into your way and that we would make your kingdom known here on this earth. And we pray this today by faith in the name of Jesus. And let's all say together, amen. Let's begin here, if we would, at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Chapter 5, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced. Somebody say, I'm convinced. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we once regarded Christ from a worldly point of view, but we do so no longer, what Paul says. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I like to say that she is a new creation as well. The old has gone, the new has come. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has now given us the ministry of reconciliation, which is that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting the sins of humanity against them, and that he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are Christ's ambassadors. Somebody say, I'm an ambassador. Look at somebody and say, you're an ambassador. We are ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. That is powerful. That God himself is appealing to the people of the world around us through our lives. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Today, we're gonna talk about The fact that the people of God, the church of God, the local embodiment of the kingdom of God is to be a reconciling community. It is to be a reconciling community. And 
Three weeks ago, we turned a corner in our series and we began talking about the biblical imperative of a local dynamic of God's church. That the, the church is not just universal, the church is also local. And it is the church where the kingdom of God is embodied and where the kingdom of God is made visible in and through the local concrete embodiment of his church. And so what that means is in order for God's kingdom to come to bear on the earth, there must be a group of people that are committed to God and committed to one another in order for his kingdom value and his kingdom wisdom to be seen. And if that means that if we're gonna be in proximity with one another and we're gonna do that over a long period of time, we're going to experience some conflict. Jonathan followed up that message two weeks ago on a message that the kingdom of God and the church is comprised of very many different people. We're not a homogenous unit, not in our gender, not in our ethnicity, not in our race, not in our education, not in our experiences. So the church is a fellowship of difference. And because we are committed to live in proximity, because we're committed to live in closeness, and because we're committed to live as the church over a long period of time, and because we are all so different, I'd like to propose to you today that conflict is inevitable. It is inevitable. So I got three main ideas I wanna to share today. Very one, number one, very simply, is that conflict is inevitable. It means that it's unavoidable. Number two, that in Christ, reconciliation is possible. Reconciliation is possible. And that number three, that through the church, that the kingdom of God in reconciliation is made visible. All right, let's get into this this morning. Conflict is inevitable. And it's inevitable for at least four reasons. Number one, it's inevitable because of sin. <laughs> number two, it's inevitable because of the level of closeness that we're called to live with one another. Number three, it is inevitable because of our differences. And number four, it is inevitable because of our maturity levels. That just is what it is. Man, when Christy and I were first married, eight, 17 years ago, we experienced way more conflict. And that's because I was way less mature than she was <laughs> and still am. And so maturity has a bearing on the level of conflict that we experience. So let's, let's get into this a little bit. What do we mean by conflict? Well, we have to understand that there's, there's a scale of conflict. And I'm gonna use this word pretty, pretty generously. Uh, I'm gonna use the word conflict to communicate everything from simple disagreements all the way to deep-seated offenses and resentments and then all the way even to, to death and, and, and war. So we're gonna use this word very generously and we're talking about the fact that because of sin, the very idea of conflict has now been released into the world. And we experience conflict through sin on four primary relationships. Number one, our relationship with God. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter three, immediately their relationship with God was altered. They experienced conflict with God. They experienced an opposition. They were in alienation. They experienced difference in the way that they related to God that they had not experienced before. Conflict in our relationship 
with God. Number two, because of sin, we experience conflict in our relationship with ourselves. You know, this morning we prayed as a people. We prayed into the issue of suicide and depression. And the reality of suicide and depression is a clear indicator that humanity is not in harmony. We're not experiencing peace and life in our relationship with ourselves. If you've ever thought negative thoughts about yourself, if you've ever, if you've ever experienced a situation to where a thought popped up into your mind and you recognized at some point that thought is not a life-giving thought. It is not a healthy thought. It is not a thought that's producing the Zoe abundant life of God that Jesus said that he was coming to bring. It is an indicator that we are not in harmony with ourselves. And that is a result of sin being released into the earth. Number three, we're in conflict with our fellow man, speaking very, very generically. We're in conflict with our brother and our sister. We're in conflict with mankind. In fact, if we look right here in Genesis chapter four, Alyssa, if we could just look at Genesis chapter four, verses three through nine, three through nine. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Now look at the implication here of this story. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Verse eight, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The first brothers in humanity, the first family relationship, and the scriptures tell us that there was a murder that was birthed out of jealousy and insecurity and anger. And we see very clearly that mankind has been fighting with each other ever since because conflict is a result of sin. And then finally, we see that we're also in conflict, not just with God, not just with ourselves. We're in conflict, not just with one another. We're actually in conflict with the actual created order. The earth does not respond to us the way that it did. When God created Adam in Genesis chapter two to work the land, to produce fruit, to tend the garden, there was this relationship of peace and harmony and dominion that Adam was walking in by the goodness and the grace of God. And we're no longer operating in that relationship whether it be the way that we care for animals or the way that we care for our ozone layer or the way that we care for um, our oceans or the way that we care for the actual land itself, we are in conflict and we're not walking out the God-given creative mandate to steward the world as God has called us to. We're in conflict with this. But the good news today and the gospel always brings us good news is that because of Christ, reconciliation is possible. Reconciliation is possible. 
And going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I, I want to take a look at this passage of scripture a little more deeply. And I want us to extract some principles on how we as the people of God can enter back into that place of revealing the reconciliation of God, both with God, with ourselves, with one another, and with the created order. But I'm going to focus today on our relationship with one another because this is a series on the church, and it is my conviction, scripturally and theologically, that this is one of the primary ways by which we witness to the kingdom of God on the earth. In fact, if you've ever had any conversations with people that don't know Christ, or maybe a little antagonistic towards Christ, one of the things that you might discover is that one of the main reasons that people are suspicious of the church, there's many, but one of the primary reasons is because of the way that we treat one another. Now, when they look at the way that we talk about one another and slander one another and we're not committed to one another and, and there almost seems to be this built-in competitiveness and jealousy one with another, I mean, that is not attractive. When we leave one another over small differences, that is not attractive. And the theory here, actually the proposal that I'd like to make is the way that we treat one another, particularly when it comes to our disagreements over the long haul of a close relationship, becomes one of the primary witnesses of the reality of the kingdom of God here on earth. So going to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to identify several principles on how to be like Jesus, as we have sang and declared and prayed today, particularly in the arena of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, looking again at verse 14. Listen, can we just put verse 14 on the screen? For Christ's love compels us. Number one, reconciliation must be motivated by the love of God. It must be fueled by the love of God. In fact, I would like to submit to you today, church, that when there is a disagreement or when there is an offense, that when unforgiveness and resentment are just breeding in our heart and in our mind, my submission to you is that by the power of the Spirit, that the love of God has the ability to overcome. It has the ability to supersede, to transcend, to be greater, to be stronger than the offense that is growing within us, to be stronger than the difference that is growing within us. And we can see that even on, on, mic on, on micro levels, even in marriages, there are things over the past 17 years, and 17 years is not long compared to some of the other amazing people that have lived faithfully to one another over the years. But in 17 years or in 50 years, one of the things that we discern in marriage is that if we're gonna make this, there's gotta, be, there's gotta be things that we disagree on that our love for one another is greater than our disagreements. And if we focus on our disagreements or if we focus on our differences, then we, then we allow love to be small and there will be constant conflict and friction in our relationship. It must be motivated by love. Let's keep that verse up there. Here's the second point. True reconciliation always costs something. I want you to think about that. True reconciliation will always cost something. The ultimate reconciliation that we now have with God, we have because God sent his only son. 
that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The only way that you and I have any semblance of relationship with God is because he chose to pay a price. I was meditating quite for, for, for quite some time on this thought in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, which says that at one point that we were alienated from God and that you and I were enemies with God. We were enemies with God. And I, felt, I, just, I just thought on that over and over and over because I tend to forget the reality that at one point in my life, in my journey, I was an enemy with God. I was an enemy. The scripture says that we were living under the dominion of the enemy. We were living, we were literally slaves living under the dominion of darkness that our wills were completely contrary to the will of God. We were antagonistic towards God. We were opposed to God. We weren't just separated. We were actually against him. And yet, even in that state of being enemies, God pursued us so that we could be brought back into relational reconciliation. Point number three, again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced. We are convinced. Reconciliation requires a conviction. If reconciliation is optional, it will never happen. Because reconciliation will always cost somebody something. And so if it costs you something and it's optional, why pay such a hefty price unless you have a conviction? Let, let, us, let us examine our marriages. Let us examine our friendships. Let us examine our relationship with our neighbor. Let us examine our relationship with those that are in this room. Let us examine our relationship with the people that we work with in the yoke of our vocation. And let us really wrestle this to a place. Here's, 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 here's what I've discovered, guys. That for you to go through the humiliation and the humbling, for you to forgive and do the hard work of forgiveness, you gotta have something that is burning and working down deep on the inside of you that says, I have a conviction of this. Something that is greater than our offense is worth me going through the difficult work of reconciliation. Now let's not be fooled. Reconciliation is not easy work. It's not easy work. And let me also, let me also submit and suggest that when we start seeing reconciliation on a, on a social level, whether that's people groups that are in other parts of the world or whether that's ethnic groups that are here in our own land or racial divisions that exist, the reality of racial divisions that exist. My proposition is that the church is missing its greatest opportunity to bring the kingdom of God to bear where there is conflict and where there is disagreement and where there is actual hatred and it's hard work. It is not easy. Point number four, no person or situation is beyond the grasp of God's reconciling power. Look at this, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. It doesn't matter how deep 
the disagreement goes. It doesn't matter how painful the offense is. Scripture tells us that there is not one person that is beyond the grasp of God's ability to reconcile. And I would even submit, particularly in the family of God. Now, we experience greater hurdles when we're dealing with the topic of reconciliation with those that don't know Christ. But for those in the family of God, Antioch, for those that have the same Holy Spirit living inside of us, yeah, I understand our worldviews and our belief systems and our value systems might be different, but we have the same Holy Spirit and the same Lord and the same blood that has washed every single one of us. And my proposal this morning, it is actually a plea, is that if there is someone in the body of Christ, they are not beyond the power of God to enter into that space and to bring reconciliation. I also am aware that true reconciliation requires both parties or all parties. And so where reconciliation may be possible, it may not be actualized. But as far as it rests on me, and as far as it rests on you, my prayer is that we would be a people that say we are going to contend, and we are going to believe, and we're going to release our faith, and we're going to humble ourselves, and we are going to intercede for reconciliation to happen in this relationship. Point number five, look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. Reconciliation requires dying to ourselves. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. I cannot tell you how many uh, moments that I have been in with people, with relationships that are meaningful to me, that I definitively knew that if this relationship is gonna move forward, that something in me has to die. My pride has to die and I've gotta go say sorry. My right to be offended has to die and I have to forgive. My need to have things go my way must die. My idiosyncrasies, my personalities, there's something inside of me that I've gotta be willing to offer to the Lord to die in order for the life of God to be produced in this relationship. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. And here's what I, here's what I know, that as long as we're holding on to something of ourselves and we allow that thing to be greater than reconciliation in the relationship, reconciliation will never happen. It will not happen. Point number six It requires regarding no one from a worldly point of view. Look at verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Here's how the enemy likes to work. That whenever you experience disagreement or difference or frustration or irritation with someone else, here's how the enemy likes to work. When Jonathan preached about the kingdom of God and the church being a fellowship of difference, we like to so animate the differences between us that there's no way that we can possibly see how God is working. And essentially what we're doing is we're doing this right here. We are regarding one another from a worldly point of view. 
When we focus on the negative aspects of our differences, we are actually creating a breeding ground for the enemy to give us his interpretation of one another. That's what's, that's what's going on here. When we interact with people that we're, that we're obviously different from, we must invite the Spirit of God to give us a new lens on how to see our differences. Otherwise, reconciliation witness will never happen. Next point, we must give people room to change. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any person be in Christ, they are a new creature. They are a new creation. If we hold people to where they were five years ago or 10 years ago, if we hold people to where they were five weeks ago, five days ago, we'll never experience reconciliation if we're always saying, well, you always and you used to and you did. Man, I pray to God that people don't regard me as who I was five years ago or five months ago or five weeks ago because the hope of the gospel announces that he is making all things new. I mean, we, we declared that today. We prophesied that today. We spoke that out over our lives. We, we got our hearts and our minds in agreement with the word of God that he's making all things new. And if we really believe that he's making all things new, then the differences that you and I experience or the differences that you and you experience even five days or five weeks or five months ago, we, we have to allow our prophetic declaration of the truth of God's word that he's making all things new to supersede our view of who a person was and who a person is. Reconciliation will never take place if we hold people to who they were. Give people space to grow. God knows he's doing that for you. Next point, someone must go first. Look at verse 19. And all of this, oh, that God was reconciling the world to himself. If anybody has ever in all of eternity had a reason to be offended and justifiably so, If anybody would have been justified to fold their arms and walk away and say, you know what, I'm done, it would have been God. If anybody could sit back and say, you need to to figure this out. And whenever you get your stuff together, you need to come and talk to me and then we're gonna make things right. It'd be God. But someone has gotta go first. And sometimes someone's gotta go first and second, and third, and fourth, and fifth. Someone's got to go first multiple times in order to see the kingdom of God come to bear in our relationships. See, today my hope and my prayer is that something would be legitimately awakened inside of us. Today my hope and my prayer, without getting into all the mechanical practices, because there are many, Today, I'm trying to stay principle-based enough for us to say, God, I want to posture my heart to be a person and a people of reconciliation because I am convinced that that is who your church is. Final point right here, reconciliation requires forgiveness. Look at verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
Reconciliation is hard work and it requires a deep work of forgiveness on our part. Let's look at the next verse here, verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. This is why all this matters. This is why this matters. This is why the conversations that we have with our children matter. This is why the way that we handle arguments and different differences and disagreements with our spouses or our friends or our coworkers or our bosses or people within our churches. This is why this matters because the world is watching. The world is watching. A couple years ago, we as a church walked through a book together as a people called Faithful Presence by David Fitch. I actually found an article that David Fitch wrote seven years ago. He was writing these articles from which the book came forth. And in this particular article, he said something that I didn't catch in the book. He says that conflict is ground zero for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to think about this because I think this is revolutionary. I really do. Because if we're honest with ourselves, I think we like, we, 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 stri- we, sh- we, we stray away, we shy away and we stray away from reconciliation because of confrontation, because it can be scary and it's uncertain and that can be very, very insecure. And especially if we've had negative experiences of this in our past. But here's the good news of the gospel. Here's the good news, not to diminish that. Here's the good news. The good news is there is a new paradigm and a new perspective for how God sees this. So when Christy and I have a disagreement, this is actually unclaimed territory for the kingdom of God. Think about it. If she and I aren't seeing something the same way and we have gridlocked ourselves and I'm going in one direction and she's going a different direction, that space where that issue is, is actually space where God's kingdom is not reigning, which makes it ground zero for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Now, when I begin looking at things like this, if we can begin looking at the differences and the disagreements and the resentments and the offenses and and, and the outright hatred that might be stewing inside of us, if we can say, somehow, God, would would you condition my perspective to look at that as unclaimed territory for the kingdom of God? Now, let me, let me just kind of jump on the soapbox and Jonathan, come up here and rescue me if you would. But, you know, I think what we like to do is we like to make ideas like spiritual warfare. We like to make those very like demonstrative ideas about attacking some principality that's way out there. But here's my proposal. My proposal is that when we actually lean into our conflict and we say, God, this is unclaimed space for the kingdom of God to rule we are doing some of the greatest spiritual warfare of all. That when we say we are not going to allow hurts, differences, offenses, disagreements to pull us apart, but we're gonna lean in and say, God, this is space that belongs to you. This is space where you want to reign. This is space where it has not yet been devoted to the rule of the kingdom of God. And today we mutually submit to you and to one another for you to work in this space and allow the shalom of the kingdom of God to reign and life to spring forward. I'm not saying that's easy, but I'm saying that if we will posture our hearts in that direction, we have postured ourselves towards miracles. Antioch, would you stand with me this morning to your feet? 
I love the prophetic picture of the table. Because at this table, despite differences, despite disagreements, despite sin, despite different personalities, God says, I can be present in the space where you are not together. And the table is actually a prophetic picture and symbol and proclamation that where there is estrangement, that God can and will and desires to bring reconciliation. Now I'm going to actually just pause here for a moment and allow the Holy Spirit of God to just hover over our hearts and our minds and to bring to our attention any person or any situation where he might be inviting us to be the first. Holy Spirit, we submit to you today. And we ask that you would help us to be sensitive and to be tender and courageous and willing and faithful and obedient to cause the the reconciliation of your kingdom to come to bear on the earth. Speak to us, prod us, nudge us. And if it's not now, Spirit of God, by the grace of God, we are asking that in our future, when we experience conflict, because it is unavoidable, that we would approach this conflict in humility and faith and grace. And we would expect to see the kingdom of God come to bear in the unclaimed territory of conflict in our relationships. We pray these things today in faith in Christ's name. Antioch, I'd like to invite you to come to the table of the Lord on the night where Christ was betrayed. He had a meal with his closest friends and that meal was actually a meal that was brought into their present from their past. It was a meal that celebrated God's faithfulness to deliver his people out of oppression and bondage. And it was a prophetic picture that in the same way that God delivered the people of Israel, that God will deliver us. And so we come to this table as a proclamation that Christ reigns and that Christ has offered the invitation of salvation and a relationship with him that we no longer have to be estranged from God. We can enter into reconciliation with God. And so we honor this table today and we invite you to come and honor it with us. Antioch, come to the table. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.